Welcome back to Nipe Story. This fortnightly podcast brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and the African continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mwachiro. And resume the podcast with a contribution from our writer, who's very much at home here on Nipe Story. Here's Kiprop Kimutai with the story, Abounded Life. Nandwa didn't hear Chimayo knock. She was on the floor, propped against her bed with a pillow, folding flamingos from pink paper. It hit her, about 20 minutes later, that it was Tuesday, the day of the week when Chimayo came over to clean. She bounced past lumps of clothes on the floor and the cups she had dropped, which had spilled dank fluids and stained the plywood floor, past the two wooden sculptures of long-limbed squatting men outside the beaded curtain that opened to the living room. She opened the front door, ready to be contrite, but when she saw Chimayo waiting, unflustered, in muddy ballet shoes and a blue jacket, she held back her apology and decided to add an additional 500 shillings to her pay. Chimayo ambled in and lay her ring on Nandwa's palm. She was panting as if she had walked a long distance, as if she hadn't used a matatu. I start with the clothes, she said, out of habit, no longer a question. Nandwa carried the ring through the beaded curtain into the kitchen and placed it inside the tiny wooden pot on top of a fridge that mostly stored alcohol. When she went back to the living room, Chimayo had taken off her jacket and folded the sleeves of her T-shirts over her shoulders. I think there is enough, Omo, said Nandwa. Take coins from the tin by the window and buy more if you need to. Or you have made some effort this time round, said Chimayo. The house isn't that dirty, but you still leave cups on the floor. Nandwa picked one up. I had guests. Chimayo's eyes enlarged. It's your house, she said. Don't mind me. For Nandwa, the world was a lump of clay for her eager hands. For Chimayo, it had to be a place she reported to duty with her shoulders squared. Once, when Melo from the Konyagi Nandwa had offered, Chimayo said it was peculiar for a middle-aged woman like Nandwa to live alone in a house made from cheaping containers, with its black-painted walls and curtains of red Maasai shuka. Nandwa lived on the one-eight piece of land inherited from her father, when every property owner around her had moved elsewhere and used their land to build high-rise apartment blocks, five stories and more, which shielded her house and compound from the sun. I'm making flamingos for the exhibition. Chimayo looked at the scattered orange cushions and the dumpy polka-dotted beanbag. Nandwa's only seats. Her chin bobbed. Flamingos are my clan's totem, she said. In our songs, we say we leave our pink feathers behind for the children to make headdresses from, which they put on to laugh and forget that they are grieving. Her statement summoned Nandwa's idea to an amorphous place. Uncomfortable, she retreated to the bedroom and plugged in her earphones. She folded another flamingo. They had boarded the same matatu at Donholm Caltex two years back. If Nandwa had stopped to buy the plums that were in season, or had taken long to find the fifty-bob note to pay the boda-boda man who carried her from Donholm Faces to Caltex, the two women wouldn't have met. Chimaya had sat next to her as she complained on the phone to her sister, Tsisika, saying there was no reliable Mama Fua to help her tidy her house. 
When Nandua ended the call, she felt lethargic. She desired quietness, to be spared from the heat dispensed by the afternoon sun and the greasy, exposed Matatu engine. Chimayo leaned over, and her citrusy scent was a comforting interruption as she showed Nandwa her hands. They were rough, the skin shriveled and the nails flat and pressed in. She said that her hands were that way because she had cleaned, washed and scoured all her life. Something in her eyes, a sincerity, charmed Nandwa to pass her phone number along. She told Chemayo to come over the next day and wait for her at Jacaranda Roundabout, from where she picked her up and took her home. She told Chemayo too much that Friday, how Tsitsika called but never visited, that she drank daily and thought she would die if she didn't, that her fibroids had been removed 11 years back and how she had marveled at the knots of flesh removed from her body. She decided she would rather be at the front line at war than let a baby, an alien thing, grow in her. Do you have children? Chimayo nodded. Twin girls. They're with their grandmother in Kapsowa. Me, I'm just here in Nairobi, looking for the flower that will make their ugali. Chemayo took out her purse, a picture of herself with her daughters, which seemed to be around nine years old. They were standing in front of a blooming bougainvillea. Chemayo was in the same brown jacket and blue skirt, and her hair was longer and plaited. The girls were in white lacy dresses and white shoes. They were smiling with their arms akimbo. What are their names? Memo and Kosi. I was a cook at Capsawar Girls, and this was my Sunday off. I took them out for chips and sausage. Cozy loves Sprite and Memo, Fanta Orange. Nandwa saw the ring when Chimayo slipped back the picture. She grasped Chimayo's finger to look closer and realized by how it glistened that it was gold. What fascinated her was the blue stone shaped like a teardrop inside its tiny gallery. I didn't steal it, said Chimayo, pulling her finger free. I don't accuse people for having nice things, said Nandwa. Still, Chimayo trembled and looked around at the acrylic paintings of guitars on the walls, at the orange cushions on the floor that were askew, at the bookcase in a corner shaped like a Venus woman and enveloped in a nastasham vine that had slithered in through the window. You haven't met a person who lives like me? Nandwa asked. I just think we should live with certain limits, Chimaya said. In this life, if you aren't careful, you will stretch till you stretch out of shape. She rubbed her wrists. Tell me what to do now. I don't want to be a bother, but I have Burbo study at three. Nandua showed her the sink piled with weak old utensils. She took her to the adjoining container that had the bathroom and bedroom at opposite ends. Once she had seen the entire house, Chimayo wrung a rug in water and walked around, wiping stains off the floor and walls, using a spoon to scrub when she found candle wax. 
She replaced the fallen Akan masks, multicolored feather caps and ceramic whales on their ledges. She sung as she washed a mountain of clothes and when Nandua couldn't trace where the hanging pegs were, looked at her a little longer than necessary. Three hours later, the house was clean. Chamaya opened the windows to let the rooms breathe. Nandua was touched but also embarrassed. But it was Chamaya who stood before her, face down, stroking the ring on her finger. You should let me keep it for you when you come, said Nandua. If I lose it, it will be like losing my life. Was it a gift? Chumayo didn't answer. Can I be coming on Tuesdays? Yes, said Nandwa. That isn't a problem. Actually, the problem is for you to tell me how much I should pay you. Send on Mpesa what you may, Chumayo said and left. In four days... Lumps of dirty clothes were on the floor again and unwashed cups and plates had filled the sink. Nandwa hated chores, for they reminded her that she was a metabolic, perspiring being. An act as small as sweeping could have her running to shower, eager for the rush of warm water to make her forget the discomforts of being embodied. She told herself that if she kept the house too clean, there would be no reason for Chemayo to come back. And she wanted Chemayo back, moving around the house and tidying it up, engendering bliss. Inside her room, Nandwa strung the flamingos she had folded with long threads and stepped on the bed to pin them on the roof. They waved to and fro when she set them free flying. She wanted Chimayo to come in and see. That was as much as she could do without blurting that she had Chimayo in mind when the idea first suggested itself. She wondered if Chimayo, as austere as she was, would make any meaning from the creation, but quickly reprimanded herself for the condescending thought. The corridor sparkled as expected. Cups were clean and shelved. Nandwa pushed the beaded curtain aside and saw that Chemayo had picked the cowrie shells she had arranged in a semicircle, one of the sculptures, and heaped them on the beanbag. Chemayo had placed the orange cushions against the wall and at the center of the surgically clean living room, she lay on the floor. On her back, one arm bent and pressed to her waist, the other stretched out with the palm open as if in a greeting. Petrified, Nandwa retreated to the kitchen and pulled out a bottle of Blue Moon from the fridge, which she uncupped and drank. She choked from the bitterness and after a third gulp, poured it down the drain. She walked back to the living room and knelt beside Jemaya. Her forehead was warm, although even then an undefinable essence had separated from her physical substance. Nandwa knew she wasn't looking at Chemayo, only at a shell, by dying. Chemayo had slipped to an envied place of rest, reminding Nandwa how horrible and heavy being alive was. She rolled back Chimayo's t-shirt sleeves and straightened the arms whose palms were already cold from the washing and cleaning. Blood dripped thinly from her ear and Nandwa realized Chimayo had flailed as she let go of life, scribbling circles on the wet floor with her feet. 
Nandwa collapsed on the cushion when she was done and sat for long, listening to a peculiar buzzing sound in the air. When hunger gnawed, she stepped out of the house and compound. She followed the Maram road that twisted past Wattle's stalls selling tomatoes, bananas and skumawiki, past children playing in narrow shadowy corridors until she reached the rusty Mabati shed where she regularly bought her potato chips. The air was chilly, grey clouds sealing the sun. She asked for a cold soda from the fridge and drank it as if she had crossed the Sahara. Are you boiling, Mama? said the man, minding the chip stand. He looked like he lifted weights and had a fascinating G-cleft tattoo on his arm that floated over streams of bulging veins. He smiled a little too much, disrupting the stillness necessary for Nandwa to establish how handsome he was. He was new. Nandwa had only seen a reedy, whimsical girl selling there before. She concluded that he was the type of man who never hid from the world and wasn't surprised when he plied her packet of potato chips with coleslaw and copious tomato sauce without asking her first. Your brain seems to be so far, he said, and before she could answer, added, I understand why. This Nairobi will show you things. If you meet someone along the road and they look a little wild, just nod and understand that Nairobi has turned them into an animal. He picked the remaining chicken nugget from the corner of the glass food container and placed it on top of her potato chips. A kind gesture. Nandwa picked the manila sleeve, wet with oil, and meandered through Donholm phases, past piles of sand and granite blocks and the dusty men building, past cows that were surprisingly rotund in an area without visible grass. Everyone seemed enlivened, convivial, bonded by a good humour she had missed out on. When she picked the last potato chips, there was no new place to walk to. She turned back. Nandwa stepped inside the church on the thin strip of land outside her compound. It was nothing but a tattered tent with benches and screechy sound system. The mid-morning service was in progress, attended by five people, each with a microphone, which they used to sing as loudly and as badly as they could. She felt an intestinal weight of despair when she approached the pastor, a burly, blue-suited man with evasive eyes, and her trepidation settled when she was close to him. He didn't have to lean over to listen, for her voice reverberated. Please help me. There's a Mama Fua who has collapsed inside my house. Nandwa only had a few minutes with Chimayo before the pastor walked in with another man. He looked at the body and trailed his finger over his face, pulling down his cheeks. Open the windows, please, he said, before the body starts to rot. Soon enough, more and more people streamed in, their lips curling in wondrous O's when they spotted the body. They began to blur into each other, and a day later, she wouldn't have been able to tell them apart. Not even the police officer who asked her to sign her name on what he called a D3 form. In that private, dwindling time, 
She looked up and down Jemayo's corpse, hoping to find something redeeming. Jemayo had shaved her hair close to the skin and her mouth was open in a manner clarifying that she was gone, that she would never again breathe. The blood that dripped from her ear had clotted on its edge and turned viscous. Nandwa wanted to touch her, but was afraid to. Loneliness crawled out of its hiding place in her chest and dragged an icy, limbless body across. When the crowd grew, she stood still, hoping to be inconspicuous. She was irritated by how they moved with abandon, shredding some previously unacknowledged sacredness from her living room. At hospital, they asked if she was family. When Nandwa said no, they told her to go home, for they couldn't give her any more information. Tsitsika came over to stay and hugged her in that irritating way siblings do when they try to act caring and concerned. She cleaned the house the same day she arrived, wiping footprints from the floor and the stains left on the walls and paintings. She moved things around in a tidying effort that erased any legacy of Jemayo's touch. Nandwa was too shaken to push back, and a little over a week later, she told Nandwa to sell the land and move to Joska. I wonder why you stay here with these people, she said. We are pricey people and you choose to live with the worthless in Donholm. Look for someone to exchange this land with. You will not miss someone in Ruai with even half an acre. This property is near town and many people will be eager to build a rental apartment on it. Tsitsika was a petite woman with small cunning eyes. She had adhered to a diet that had turned her thinner, as if drawn with the quick dashes of a pencil. She was four years younger than Nandwa, but was married with three children. This alone had her acting like the sensible older sister. A few months earlier, she had called Nandwa before dawn, crying and complaining about her husband Mahiho, who was coming home late each night without an explanation. Nandwa took a taxi to their five-bedroom mansion in Ruaka. Together, they confronted Mahiho, locking him in the bedroom when he was about to leave for a business trip. They smashed his iPhone on the wall and tore his Samsonite suitcase to rip the clothes he had packed. Later, when they got tired, they sat down and ate ice cream. Tsitsika had said she was leaving Mahiho for good, even if it meant building a small Mabati shed and cutting Skumawiki for the rest of her life. Now, as Sisika talked, Nandwa remembered Fatuma, the woman Mahiho had cheated with. Nandwa had stalked her on Facebook and seen the pixel-rich bikini pictures, the brown beads on an impossibly narrow waist. She wondered how it would be if Fatuma was her sister and the one visiting. The thought filled her with a radiant emotion. If our parents were still here, Nandwa, they would have been surprised by your current lifestyle. You still survive on their rental income. Jameni, where is your life? Mother did not want you at the hospital in her last days, Nandwa said, intending to bite back. Tsitsika stroked Nandwa's palm. I am worried about you staying here by yourself, she said. 
You never know what Chemayo's people are thinking. Maybe they don't see you as innocent, eh? When Nandua walked around the estate, she felt she was being watched, as if out of nowhere someone would grab her shoulders. Chimayo's mother had called, and Nandua had been effusive in her commiserations, sending more money than necessary for the funeral, and sending more again when her mother called the next day, saying Memo and Kosi needed school fees. Her phone started buzzing with calls from strangers, each person introducing themselves as an aunt, cousin, nephew, and asking for money. When she stopped answering, she got text. Sorry for disturbing. Please send 2,000 shillings to feed grandmother. She is starving now that her daughter is no longer with us. Did you see SMS? Please send money. God will bless you and make you richer than you are. Send 1,200 now, we buy food. You are our only hope. You killed Chimayo and now you don't want to talk to us? Huh? Nandwa didn't show Sizika the text. She changed her number, trusting the art gallery where her flamingos were to be displayed to reach her on email when they needed to. She stopped walking outside the compound and started depending on Sizika for everything, even though Sizika had started to complain that there was no air to breathe in Donholm. She said she wasn't used to boarding a matatu, but there was no other option because if she was to bring her Prado over, its parts would be stolen by any of the suspicious young men who walked around in t-shirts branded with logos of their favorite English football teams. Only the pastor passed by to see Nandwa, standing by the gate, his palms cupped over a low fence post. His fingers were lumpy and his eyes kind, as if he wanted to weep for her. He said little after asking how she was faring. But she was consoled, nevertheless, and passed him some of the mandazi Tsitsika had made. At 2 a.m., on the day before she left, Sitika switched on the lights and pulled the flamingos from the roof, heaping them on the floor. She said they terrified her, swirling in the dark as if alive, as if staring at her. Nandwa scooped up the birds and took them to the kitchen. The paper had aged too quickly and the beaks were already mouldy, deriding the care and attention she had used to fold them. Her plan before Chimayo died was to fold at least a hundred birds and have them arrayed at the roof of the gallery like actual flamingos migrating. Nandwa had watched a documentary where a pair of flamingos hatched their chick later than the rest of the flock at Lake Natron. The chick was too small to move along with a crash when the water receded and was left to pine in the hot brine as her parents flew back each day, dedicately feeding her crop milk. The presenter stated that flamingos mated for life, the female laying an egg once every three years or so, and her partner, who could also be female, sharing in the responsibility of caring and protecting the nest. She placed the flamingos on the table, the idea distant. What was close was a cocktail of emotions bubbling at a time of the night when the loudest sound was that of the wind blowing over roofs. 
She thought of Chemayo coming over that Tuesday, remembered the frustrated helplessness of her mien. Nandwa took a can of guarana from the fridge and walked to the living room, then sat on the beanbag facing the spot where Chemayo had died. It was clean and waxed, as if her absence carried no meaning, an insignificant pebble on a wide causeway the living walked on. Nandwa tried to imagine that she had also moved on, doing her best to dissuade the feeling that she was lying to herself, that she was still hollow inside. And in that state of struggle, she remembered the ring. The wooden pot wasn't on top of the fridge. She held in a scream, knowing it was possible that Sisika had thrown it out with the garbage. But it was on the shelf above the fridge. She took it out and opened the lid, sighing when she saw the ring. She held it close to her eye, peering at the blue teardrop, for a moment wondering if it could absorb her emotions. She tried to put on the ring, but it stuck on her first phalanx and flew into the darkness when she pulled it off. She searched desperately, asking Saint Anthony of Padua not to humiliate her more, but to reveal to her where it was. When she traced it under a door hinge, she clutched it with her fist. Nandwa, come back to bed, said Sisika, standing by the doorway in her silver nightdress. You're making me scared. I'm just hearing noises and someone moving around. Are, are you okay? Is it a crime to walk around my house? Nandwa asked. Tsitsika shrugged and went back to her bedroom. Later, when Nandwa walked in, she had turned over, sleeping as she used to when she was a child, with her legs curled and a thumb in her mouth. Nandwa leaned on her elbow and watched her sister sleep. She stroked the fine wisps of hair on the back of her sister's neck and felt bereft the whole time, as if she had arrived alone on a bare moon. When Sitika left, Nandwa cooked less and less, relying on potato chips from the muscly man whose name she never bothered to learn. He had a way of talking to her that left her delighted. Like the day he told her, who has disturbed you, auntie? I go beat them now. I want to see you smiling. It was out of context and silly, but it made her laugh. One afternoon, she tried to tell the man about a cat she had seen running away from a sewer cat. He kept piling potato chips into the manila sleeves without looking at her, and before she finished what she thought was a humorous story, he interrupted her and asked if she was the woman that that thing happened to. Nandwa kept quiet and looked on. A man came here asking if I knew where you lived, he said. Did you tell him? <laughs> he laughed, his eyes a young boy's. I don't know where you live, Mama. He said the man who asked about her was light-skinned and presumably in his mid-forties. He was definitely not Kalinjin, like Chimayo, because of his faint Kamba accent. 
He seemed a man of some means, but also distressed as if his money had failed to grant him unexpected satisfaction. Did he seem a bad person? she asked. Now, how will I know, auntie? I'm just a young man frying chips. But he left his number and told me to pass it to you. Eh? Inasmuch as Nandwa tried to suppress the thought, she walked with it home. The man looking for her was the man who had loved Chamayo enough to give her the ring. She felt unsettled, imagining what kind of love as the anchor missing in her life. No wonder she felt weightless, always floating over the days. She closed the curtains as soon as she was in the house and felt secure drowning in shadow. The pastor knocked after she had eaten. She let him in. He looked withdrawn. Once switched on, the room's lights revealed bits of grey hair on his forehead that she had never noticed. When he asked why she had such sad eyes, Nandwa walked to the kitchen without answering and made herself a glass of gin, pouring him pick-and-peel's orange juice. He said he didn't mind standing, adding that he didn't plan to stay for long. She could tell that he had been good-looking when younger and had taken it for granted, making no effort to eat well or to exercise. And now the sharp contours of his face were fading. It isn't good for a woman to be alone, he said. It isn't good before God. <laughs> Do you want my land? she asked, half-jokingly. <laughs> I am simply a preacher, he said. <laughs> I'm not one of those greedy TV pastors. The declaration was absurdly funny to him, and he laughed as Nandwa looked on. When he stopped laughing, he asked how she was feeling. I don't know, she said. It was a sincere answer. Also, and this isn't out of malice, are you a Christian? I'm Catholic. Catholics are children of God too. I've heard you preach that we worship the spirit of Jezebel. He walked closer. He looked like he hadn't slept well. His collar was skewed. I kept thinking about the look in your eyes that time you walked into my church. I could never imagine a woman needing me that way. I was surprised that you needed my help that much. The pastor picked up her glass of gin and took a sip, then smiled at her with his upper lip soaked wet. He was shivering. When Nandwa tried to steady his chin, he turned his face to the side. It felt so natural then to hold his waist and pull him in, and the embrace would have retained its material energy had their eyes not locked. His eyes telling her that he wanted her more and had wanted more for a long time. She took back the glass of gin so that he could peel off his suit and reveal the man inside, hairy, soft-bellied with an erect penis that traced its curve inside old, 
loose boxes. She told him not to take off his socks because the floor was cold and she lay on the beanbag, moving her body to make him comfortable as he entered her. He cupped her breast from behind and she feared her hair would suffocate him when he pressed his mouth to the back of her head, kissing her. The pastor was too desperate to seek her cooperation and she was grateful for that, not having to meet him halfway. As if she was a demiurge, learning about being human each time he clapped her buttocks with his pony waist. The small of her back absorbed his body heat and became a new axis for her body. And when she closed her eyes, she saw the fence that stood between her house and his church brown with blowing dust. She had only started to admit her own pleasure when he gruntled and released himself. He asked for a glass of water and she directed him to the kitchen. She was still naked when he walked out. She didn't bother to check if he had closed the door properly. It had been a while since she had had sex and in its aftermath she felt she couldn't contain herself, as if her essence had turned riotous and spilled out the boundaries of her skin. She wondered if there was a form of love that was an intense version of this exact experience. By the time she had dressed, she was sure she would call the number she had picked from the potato chips man. Two days later, she called the number and was surprised by the man's pleasantly gruff voice, how it didn't hint at anything sinister. The man agreed annoyingly to her every suggestion, including meeting up at Harry's in Emoja that Sunday afternoon. Nandua went there on Sunday and ordered Hambuzi Choma with Kachumbari and Ugali, doubting he would come at all, only to be disrupted by his shadow than his actual face as he sat across her, pale, crusty-eyed in an oversized turtleneck. While he stared endlessly at her, she passed him her unopened bottle of Tusker. His name was Jafari and he was an Uber driver living in Umoja. Sunday was his day off when he would lock himself in his bedroom and sleep the entire day. Did you love her? Nandua asked. He looked briefly confused, and when he realized what she was asking, <laughs> he laughed. His teeth were as spoilt as hers, part of his bottom incisors knocked off. She imagined him to be the kind of person who drank as much as she did. That woman, you mean, he said. Nandua nodded. So you mean to tell me Chamayo died just like that? Jafari looked at her, and Nandwa realized it was a question she was expected to answer. Yes, she said, and finding the answer incomplete, added, she wanted more from the world. Even if she did, she is gone, he said. It is Sunday, and you and I are alive. He had the same ring as Chamayo on his finger. Nandwa saw it when he washed his hands in the basin the waiter brought over. 
Jafari folded his ugali with a lump and pressed a hole in the center to scoop the mbuzi choma and kachumbari. Nandwa preferred chewing a piece of ugali first before biting the meat. I know you have questions, he said. A woman as ripe as you can ask me anything. She had told him about the ring over the phone and he had said nothing. She had it with her now, in the pocket of the faded kitenge pants she had put on. What did you do to make her like you that way? she asked. Jafari laughed again, spitting out bits of ugali, some of which landed on her palms. It must be this man too, he pointed. I use mine well. I was like you too, before she died, Nandwa said. What do you mean like me? he asked, suddenly nervous. I didn't have boundaries to my thoughts, to how I lived. Jafari tilted his head back as if trying to make her see less of whatever she had begun to notice in him. Nandwa stared at his pimpled forehead. Chimaya was steadfast and unfailingly polite, very genuine, a rare type of person, heaven material. He looked on as Nandwa spoke, and when she finished, he placed his elbow on the table, wafting Chimayo's citrusy scent. Let me tell you about the ring. It was Friday, and after driving the drunkards of Nairobi back to their wives, I went over to my house and found myself locked outside. My wife was screaming that I could go back and sleep with the prostitutes I'd obviously spent the night with. When I called Chemayo, she said she was at home and about to sleep. She agreed still to meet me at the Matatu stage when I told her I needed her. I picked her up and we drove to town and I brought her all the fried chicken and chips she wanted at Sonford. After fucking in a lodging, I gave her the ring I planned to give my wife. I told her it could mean anything she wanted it to mean. What did she say? I think she said she had never received such a gift from anyone. Or maybe she just smiled. It's hard to remember, you know. When someone dies, you make things up. Nandwa leaned on the table. The grains of its wood were white like ribs stripped of flesh. The tavern was filled up and stuffy, but Nandwa felt alone, preoccupied with images of Chimaya's body that splintered as quickly as they materialized. Fingers, hairs, ears, breasts, legs, then just the eyes. I thought you wanted the ring back, she said. I don't know, Jafari said. You can stay with it if you want. It's a trinket, really. The Somalis in Isli sell it cheap. He stretched his hands over his shoulders and yawned, spreading his legs casually. Chimayo told me about you once, about this woman she cleaned for who had sad eyes and lived in a pretty house. He stood and placed 1,000 shillings on the table for the beer and his share of the food she had ordered. I have to go back, he said. I came here thinking I could get some. <laughs> but I realized I need my sleep more, he laughed. Nandua ordered another round of Tusker and drank alone, watching people walk in. 
When she stepped out, the world was as ordinary as she had left it. The pavement back to Dornholm thronged by passers-by and by women frying and selling fish in large suit-covered smoking billowing vats. She saw a biscuit wrapper rise in the wind and smack the yellow stem of an acacia tree. She crossed to the other side of the road where she saw a tiny purplish flower growing near the edge of a curlvat. A bee buzzed around the flower, eager for nectar. A paving truck moved slowly along the road, pressing in tar and gravel. Nandwa clutched the ring and walked faster, one hand busy wiping tears from her face. Her blurred vision caused her to fumble when she tried to open her gate. Strangers from the surrounding apartment blocks looked at her and shook their heads with pity. Abounded Life was read to you by Kikombe and written by Kiprop Kimutai. Kiprop was recently named the 2023 Grey Wolf African Fiction Prize winner and in the same year he was named a Miles Morland Scholar. Congratulations Kiprop. His fiction has also appeared in No Tokens, The Johannesburg Review of Books, Kwani Trust, The Evergreen Review and Jalada Africa. Kiprop's other works on Nipe's story are Darkwell, Evening Tea with the Dead, The Wood Carving and Man at the Bridge. It's great to be back after a much-needed break and Nipe's story will continue to celebrate African short story fiction and the power of audio storytelling. So, if you'd like us to consider your short story for the podcast, drop us an email at nipestorypodcast at gmail.com. Your stories should be between 750 and 4,500 words and we'll be more than happy to have a look at them. That email once again is nipestorypodcast at gmail.com. Nipe Story is available to download or listen to wherever you get your podcast from. And we are now on Instagram and our handle is nipestory underscore podcast. And on Facebook and X, our handle is nipe underscore story. Thank you for your support and for listening. Nipe Story is a finger piano production. <laughs>